From the Financial Times in Cairo, I'm Hiba Saleh and this is FT News. Egypt's economy suffered a disastrous slowdown amid the turmoil that followed its Arab Spring uprising six years ago. The country has now regained some stability under the authoritarian regime led by Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, a former army chief. But Egypt remains heavily dependent on international funding, and its economic and social problems are deeper than ever. Cairo recently clinched a deal with the International Monetary Fund for a $12 billion loan over three years. This has meant implementing painful measures which include floating the currency and reducing subsidies. Sahar Nasser, Egypt's Minister of International Cooperation, spoke to me recently about the government's latest efforts to restore the economy. This government has asked Egyptians to put up with a lot of pain. There were some very radical reforms enacted in November, the devaluation of the currency, which saw the Egyptian pound lose 100% of its value against the dollar, new VAT tax, slashing fuel subsidies, a lot of pressure on ordinary Egyptians, 20% inflation. When can Egyptians expect to see the gain? They've seen the pain. When can they see the gain? Okay, that's a very good question. As an economist, I think it's very important to highlight that the government has moved forward with courageous decisions in terms of major economic reforms. There has been reforms related to fiscal consolidations, monetary policies, subsidies, not just cutting on subsidies, but I think how I see it is more effective targeting and more transparent subsidies where you know that subsidies would go to the needy and not to people that are not eligible for these subsidies. Going to your question, we know from international experience but also from Egypt's previous engagement and implementation of similar reforms that these have to be packaged with the economic reforms and with essential support to the social safety nets. Hence, we are moving forward with the conditional cash transfer which targets groups that could be adversely affected by these reforms. We're also working on school feeding, especially in public schools, in villages that suffer from higher incidence of poverty compared to other governorates. We're also, for example, moving for gas connections instead of cylinder, which will be utilizing a different kind of liquid that would be less costly and would also reduce the burden, especially of women who usually carry the burden of catering the families. We're also focusing a lot on education, capacity building, because we know that there is a mismatch in the labor market. So we want to make sure that the young people who who suffer from higher incidence of poverty, as you've mentioned, are actually able to improve their standard of living by getting the job that they want to have. But this takes time. People are really complaining about the way their purchasing power has been eroded. Is this not a concern at all? No, it's not a concern because what we've done is that we've managed to also do detailed analysis of the various risks that would be associated with these reforms. We've also managed to establish a database that identifies the groups that would be adversely affected by these reforms. 
And then we were able to put programs that will address all these risks and all the implications of the reform. And we continue to assess inflation, which is something we're monitoring on a daily basis. We look at inflation because obviously with the cotton subsidies, it has implications on several products and basic needs. So we're taking that into account and we're moving in a very responsive manner to address this because we are very keen on having no irreversibility. And hence, we know that that would not occur unless we cater the demands of the groups that needs more support, especially in the short term. How are you addressing it? Just by subsidies to poorer families? or No, effective targeting. For example, on social housing, the subsidies were targeted more to the developers. So that was what you call a supply-side subsidy. You used to go to the developer either through subsidized land or subsidized utilities. And this did not necessarily reach the poor families. So we moved from supply-side subsidies to demand-side subsidy. We're also promoting more effective participation of the private sector. So we're providing direct subsidies to the families through mortgage finance or through rental programs. We're also putting eligibility criteria. So the eligibility criteria is also not based on a queue or whoever comes first. But in fact, we're putting certain criteria based on social norms. For example... A family with kids would be more eligible, a married young man would, or women would be more eligible. So we're putting a certain criteria based on which the eligibility of having access to subsidized social housing is done. You said that the reforms were overdue, and indeed there is this impression when you speak to the private sector, when you speak to even institutions, they feel that this government will only move if there is a noose around its neck and that maybe you've had one round of slashing fuel subsidies, but that the government will relax now that it's enacted some reforms and got the IMF loan, and that it will stall until the next round of reforms, because there's a lot that's still lacking. I tend to a bit disagree with your statements. I'll tell you why. In fact, I see that the government and the leadership took decisions that they knew would generate positive returns for Egypt in the medium and longer term, knowing that these reforms in the short term would create grievances because in the short term, some groups might be adversely affected in the process. So in fact, they were bold to take decisions knowing that this was going to eat a bit of my capital with the public. But because I knew that later on, they would see that these reforms would generate a lot of benefits for all. And that is why there is a lot of focus on ensuring that these reforms are inclusive. And we ensure that the extensive consultation takes place. So I think being very transparent, being very inclusive throughout the process, in the design of the program, but in the implementation and in the monitoring, and being responsive to the changing environment overall. Some people might say, and actually they do say that, The government took, since 2013, billions of dollars in support from the Gulf and essentially still ended up with a situation in which reserves were low, the economy was not growing fast enough, and the problems persisted. And a decision like the devaluation came much, much too late. And now they fear that at a point in the future, the central bank might feel compelled to intervene again to support the currency. Do you see this as irreversible? 
I'm not in a position to respond on behalf of the central bank. I'm a, a professor at the American University and I teach money and banking, so and I appreciate the law governing the central bank and their independence because that's also part of having smart economics. However, going back to the reforms, I think the government was very committed to move forward with the reforms without any program agreed on with any international institutions. Because we have a lot of budget support and a lot of financial support that is not limited to the IMF, but the World Bank and African Development, along with our EU partners. Going back to your question about the funding, in fact, most of the funding were very effective on several fronts. For example, some of it was like, I see it as a Marshall Plan. A lot of investment went to the infrastructure, on roads, on energy sector, power stations. Egypt used to suffer from electricity cuts. I personally used to suffer from electricity cuts, although I reside in Heliopolis, an area that is not, I'm not even talking about Upper Egypt or Sinai. So a lot of this funding has been invested in infrastructure that Egypt needs. And if we're talking about, we're targeting private sector-led growth, we need to also ensure that they have the right infrastructure. So they need also gas connection, they need roads, they need power, they need petroleum products. So these are where the investment has gone in. When we speak to the private sector, especially the big companies, they see, for instance, the military starting companies and factories and investing, and they feel that ultimately this is competition and it's not competition on an even playing field, and they feel that they're not trusted. Whenever I hear that concern, because I, I hear it often, I tell them, why don't you bid? For this project, why don't you apply? Because, in fact, we are, as a government, very much aware that to create the number of jobs needed and to attain the economic growth rate that we are achieving, we cannot do it alone. We need the private sector to come in and to scale up. Of course, two years back, when the private sector was a little bit cautious in moving forward with investment, as in all countries, this is where the government has to step in to also inject some investments. So if you see exports picking up, but not at the rate that you're hoping for. And when you see there is a slowdown in consumption, but also private sector investment, this is when the government has to step in with a fiscal stimulus because you need to create jobs, you need to stimulate the economy. But now we want the private sector to come in and even invest more. And that's why we're now amending the investment law, although it was issued recently, but because we, we want to see where the private sector sees red tape challenges hurdles that the government can slash and so that they come in even more in the coming period. So what do you tell the people who say that they are concerned about the military entering the cement sector, the steel sector? They feel that this is a very big economic player that's beyond challenge. The most important thing on this is having a level playing field. And as I mentioned, the government had stepped in only as a fiscal stimulus at the time when the investors were refraining from investing in Egypt with a stimulus to create jobs. And I think this is important to flag. But right now, when the private sector comes in, the government is, in fact, now discussing different offerings and IPOs because we are keen on the private sector coming in on the different sectors, and not just in industry, but also on social housing and on roads and on the different programs that we have today. And that's why I post on my website old projects, including something strategic like the airport, the power stations. We want more private sector to come in. 
As Minister of International Cooperation and a member of the economic team at this really very, very sensitive moment, what worries you? What keeps you awake at night? I want to make sure that the reform program and that growth is sustainable and inclusive. Because I know from experience, if this program is not inclusive, the pace of implementation might slow down. I don't want to see any reversal, and that is why I focus a lot on the social dimension. I focus a lot on SMEs because I'm keen on creating jobs. I focus a lot on including youth in the process of design, in monitoring and implementation. I focus a lot on women because I look at the unemployment among women is higher compared to the overall employment. It's almost double. Unemployment for women is almost 24%. So I focus more on lagging regions. I cannot neglect Upper Egypt, I cannot neglect Sinai, I cannot neglect Alamein. These are areas where we should give priority. So that worries me. If I see that the benefits of this reform program would be limited to the capital, to the main cities, that would worry me. That was Sahar Nasr, Egypt's Minister for International Cooperation, speaking to me, Heba Saleh, in Cairo. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.